This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, child abuse, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. We've searched every state in the Midwest. We've questioned every vagrant that's ever set foot in the town of Wauwatosa. Buddy Schumacher is dead, and we haven't got anyone locked up for it. Why not, Zelmer? Well, we haven't had enough proof to... Detectives? What is it? You might want to see this morning's Sheboygan Press. What does it say? My God. We got a confession. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Arthur Buddy Schumacher. Last week, we covered Arthur's disappearance and the seven-week search that ended in the discovery of his decomposed body. This week, we'll cover the push to confirm a killer and learn the reason the case was never officially closed. On July 24, 1925, eight-year-old Arthur Buddy Schumacher disappeared from his Wauwatosa, Wisconsin home. His father, Arthur Sr., scoured the area for any sign of his son, while his mother, Florence, stayed home sick with grief. And after an exhausting seven-week search, Buddy's whereabouts were finally put to rest. On September 13, 1925, a mushroom forager found Buddy's body lying in the weeds by a cow tract on a local farm. The forager immediately reported the body to the police. He was still clothed, but the fabric had been torn and his body was rapidly decomposing. Buddy's condition made it difficult for police to determine his cause of death on site, as his family waited to find out what or who had killed him, his body was sent to the county coroner's office for examination. There, the detective Adolf Kramer awaited a conclusion. Uh, it smells rotten in here. What do you expect? 
The body's rotten and badly mutilated. See there in the arm? You think that blow killed him? Could be. I need to check his organs for damage first. But there's also... You think there's something in his throat? Let's see. Hmm. Oh. Oops. One second. Yes. Ah, there it is. I think I found your murder weapon, detective. A handkerchief? Stuffed all the way down to his trachea. Which means... Christ. Your boy was gagged to death. Well, time to tell the mother and father. Never gets easy, does it? Buddy's parents were horrified. The only ray of hope in the case was that after almost eight weeks of searching, Florence Schumacher was finally able to bury her baby boy. On September 15, 1925, 50 relatives and friends joined her, her husband, and Buddy's sister, Jeanette, at their home on Alice Street. Four of Buddy's closest friends were named the honorary pallbearers, and a local pastor volunteered to officiate. The drama-hungry local papers had covered every minute of the case thus far, and Buddy's funeral was no exception. According to the Milwaukee Sentinel, Buddy's mother, quote, grieved quietly as though a great pent-up force of emotion had been spent during the long weeks of waiting. After the 2 p.m. service, the group followed the coffin out of the front door into the Wauwatosa Cemetery, where Buddy's body was lowered into its grave. By September of 1925, the hunt for Buddy's killer was on. Undersheriff Herman Sonny Croning would round up possible suspects, and Detective Kramer would continue to lead the investigation. Kramer was accustomed to high-profile cases at this point. He had been on the force for 21 years and once famously traced a disappearance all the way to Argentina. The case of Buddy Schumacher's murder should have come easy to Kramer, especially if the handkerchief found in Buddy's throat led him right to the killer. Because the handkerchief was badly soiled, a pathologist decided to clean it up to see if it had any distinctive marks. He laid it onto a tray of bleach, rinsed it, and spread the fabric out under a microscope. The letter A was embroidered in the upper corner of the fabric, their first big clue. Buddy's full name was Arthur Schumacher, as was his father's. The detectives thought that the handkerchief might have belonged to the boy or to Art Sr. and took the evidence to the Schumacher house first. But Arthur had never seen the kerchief before. The local paper then put a description of the fabric in an article detailing the letter A. If anyone recognized it, they might be able to find a suspect. They waited for a response from the public. Meanwhile, previous suspect Edward Vreeland was arrested for vagrancy. Though nothing in Edward's history suggested that he was mentally insane or capable of violence, the detectives were interviewing all men recently arrested in the area and decided to give Edward another go. Buddy's companions on the day of his disappearance, Arnold Yunk, John Wolfe, and Gordon Wolfe, had not recognized Edward the first time they'd been asked to ID the man from the train. But eight weeks had passed since then. Kramer hoped that the time might have helped the boys be less afraid of Edward, so he called them in once again. The three boys were brought into a room and placed in front of a lineup of men, including Edward Vreeland. The police asked the boys to identify anyone they recognized from the day of Buddy's disappearance, specifically the man that had approached them on the train. 
Arnold and John quickly raised their fingers and pointed directly at Edward. And though Gordon couldn't make an ID, the detectives took two out of three as proof that Edward was their killer. Anticipating a court case, Kramer started gathering as much information as he could to back up his claim. The boys had stated that the assailant was wearing a dark coat on the day of the attack. So when the county jail where Edward had stayed told Kramer Edward had left behind a navy blue jacket, he added the coat to the pile of evidence. Next, District Attorney Eugene Wengert looked to Edward's companions at the correctional facility where he was being held for vagrancy. One of them, a man named Arthur Haas, had some information to share about Edward from their time together, information that might help them close the case. Edward came up to me and he leaned in real close and whispered, you look like a man I can trust. Do you know what he was talking about? He asked me about the Schumacher boy. Was real interested in the reward money for finding the body. Did he seem to know where the body was? He didn't say. But I'll tell you, he was acting suspicious. Said when the reward money got high enough, he'd go out and look for him said he knew all about the county where the boy disappeared and that he'd seen the boy that very same morning. Edward vehemently denied that this conversation with Haas occurred, and Wingert wasn't able to pursue this lead much further. But not long after, two 10-year-old boys claimed that Edward had taken them for a walk and mistreated them adding to the narrative that he assaulted and killed Buddy. They questioned him again. You did it, Edward. Just admit it. I've never seen any of those boys before in my life. But they've seen you. You see anyone else in the woods the day Buddy disappeared? A patient from one of the local hospitals was wandering around the woods that day. Well, can you describe him? Tall, thin, he had a mustache. You read that description in the papers. That's the same quote from the young boy. No, I saw him myself. Now, am I free to go? Unfortunately, Kramer didn't have strong enough evidence to legally retain Edward Vreeland. On September 18th, he admitted he would have to let him go. Edward returned to the correctional facility and the detectives began to look for a man that better matched this updated description. Though Edward's mustached man did match a description given by Buddy's companions way back at the start of the case, after a few days of searching, the detectives had no further leads. Then on September 21st, a 15-year-old boy recalled that a vagrant had once attempted to molest him in the same woods where Buddy was found. Edward Vreeland was called into question for this new case. Like with Buddy, Edward denied the accusations at first. But a day later, on September 22nd, Edward called under Sheriff Croning. He had been reading his Bible and said he had something important to confess. Welcome back. I had a change of heart, under Sheriff. About the boys? A boy, yes. I admit I lured the teenage boy into the woods, and it was wrong of me. But the Schumacher boy? No, not him. I did not murder Buddy. Unless... What is it? Spill. 
Well, I have these memory lapses, you see. Had them ever since I was a young boy myself. Edward explained that he'd been kicked in the head by a horse when he was younger and now suffered from spells where he was unable to recall anything he'd done. This put the spotlight back on Edward in the Schumacher case and in the media. A local paper even reported that now knowing that Edward was also deeply religious, the police planned to hire an evangelist to question Edward. They hoped that Edward would break down under the stress of a religious frenzy and perhaps free a tormented conscience of a loathsome secret. The evangelist did not result in a confession, but later Edward did say that if he had done anything wrong, he did not remember it. Detectives thought they were finally making progress towards a conclusion, but all their efforts would soon face stern interference. Edward's brother was about to put a stop to the questioning once and for all. When we return, a promising lead turns sour. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. On September 22nd, 1925, Notorious vagrant Edward Vreeland confessed to having memory lapses. It was possible that he'd killed Buddy Schumacher and just didn't remember it. The papers took that possibility as a confession of guilt. Yet his brother Charles was reading about Edward's confession in the papers. He didn't believe that his own brother was attacking young boys. In addition, he wanted to protect their 83-year-old mother from the news of Edward's wrongdoings. So Charles drove from Peoria, Illinois, to talk to Edward in person. See these? You're in handcuffs, Charles. You're not this man. Our mother knows you aren't this man. But I am. I've attacked a few boys. No, you have not. You are a good man who might have made one mistake under a lot of stress. I don't like these institutions they are keeping you in. They're all right. They are poisoning your mind. Now, don't say another word to the police. I'm hiring you a lawyer. Charles retained a local attorney to defend his brother. He held firm to his belief that Edward hadn't been involved in the Schumacher case and hoped that the attorney would shut Edward up. The lawyer did just that, leaving the sheriff's office with little else to go on. Their strongest piece of evidence was a small embroidered handkerchief with the letter A in the corner, which had been found in Buddy's throat during the coroner's examination. Shortly after Buddy's autopsy, a photo of the handkerchief was published in the local newspaper with a request for information. And on September 24th, nearly two months after Buddy's disappearance, Croning finally got a call from someone who had seen it. Wauwatosa Sheriff's Department, Deputy Croning speaking. Uh, hello, Mr. Croning. My name is Emma Abel, and I've got some information for you regarding the Buddy Schumacher case. It's about that handkerchief 
Go on. Last time I saw it, it was dirty as a coal mine. And when was the last time you saw it, Mrs. Abel? Mm, I took a man in for a couple of days. He was hungry, the poor thing, and I shared a few meals. And this man's name? Uh, something along the lines of Edward... Uh, Edward Vreeland, I believe. Mrs. Abel, can you come and identify the handkerchief in person? I sure can. The district attorney began preparing for Mrs. Abel's arrival and asked his clerk to fetch the handkerchief from atop his desk. But when she went into his office, it was nowhere to be found. Employees tore through the offices, opening drawers, looking under desks and in wastebaskets, but nobody could find it. This was an unfortunate twist in what had already been a roller coaster of a case. Embarrassed, District Attorney Wengert was forced to call the sheriff's office to inform them of the snafu. Deputy Sheriff Croning was so angry that on September 25th, he wrote to the county board supervisor complaining about the actions of the DA's office. I take the privilege of informing your body that the handkerchief, if it is lost, is the direct result of carelessness by the district attorney's office. The sheriff's office has not received the slightest cooperation in any effort it has made to bring the crime to a solution. Instead, there have been noticeable attempts to block us at every opportunity. Upon the receipt of this letter, it is the hope of the sheriff's department that a thorough investigation be undertaken by the county board to learn why the handkerchief found in the murdered boy's body should disappear at so vital a time. In retaliation, D.A. Wingert complained that there were certain leaks in the sheriff's department, though this claim was unsubstantiated. Fearing a huge loss in momentum of the case and countywide embarrassment, the district attorney led a thorough search of his offices, but the handkerchief was nowhere to be found, and Emma Abel was sent home. Meanwhile, because Edward Vreeland had purported to suffer from periods of memory loss, officers took him to the spot where Buddy was found, hoping that maybe the location would jog his memory. When confronted with the site of the murder, Edward did nothing but declare, Before God, I am innocent. The detectives were getting desperate. It was rumored they even considered using a new experimental truth serum to get a confession. The drug was likely scopolamine, most frequently used to induce twilight sleep in women during childbirth. But in the 1920s, investigators may have begun to use it on suspected criminals to encourage them, in their drowsy states, to admit to their wrongdoings. On September 26th, just as they were considering drugging Edward Vreeland into speaking, the detective's office finally found the handkerchief. Apparently, the DA had left it on top of a stack of important papers, and his clerk had accidentally put the papers and the handkerchief in the department's safe. There was no malice, only a small miscommunication in the office. Detectives believe that once Emma Abel identified it as Edwards, they would have more than enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Buddy Schumacher. Mrs. Abel returned to the DA's office, ready to do her civic duty. But once the handkerchief was put in front of her, 
She claimed she could not, with 100% confidence, say that the item in front of her was the same one that Edward had been carrying when he entered her home. This was strange, since a reporter had already shown her a photo. It's quite possible that Mrs. Abel hadn't made out the original picture quite right, or that she felt pressured into identifying the handkerchief and she had choked under pressure, or even that Mrs. Abel had a soft spot for Edward, and when confronted with the possibility that her testimony might convict him, she pulled back. Regardless, the DA had no concrete evidence and therefore no possible way to arrest Edward. To make matters worse, Edward's lawyer accused the department of misconduct towards his client. According to Edward's attorney, the DA had not yet charged him with either murder or assault, and therefore his detectives had zero right to hold him for questioning. The attorney's office got their papers together and planned to file a writ for unlawful detention. When DA Wengert heard that Edward's lawyers were on their way with a summons, he knew he needed to act, and quickly. Wengert released Edward and sent him back to the correctional facility, where he was finishing his vagrancy sentence. But the setbacks weren't over yet. Not long after the hang-up about the handkerchief, Buddy's friends returned and said that they'd been mistaken in identifying Edward. They said they hadn't actually recognized him, they just got nervous under the pressure of the detectives. Both departments grew even more frustrated. On October 2, 1925, Edward's vagrancy sentence ended. And without any further evidence, the police were forced to let him go. Detectives Kramer and Croning had been truly convinced that Edward was their guy. But the case had collapsed right underneath them. The town of Wauwatosa was devastated. Upon Edward's release, parents pulled their kids back inside, afraid that a murderer would never be locked up. Buddy's parents waited for more information, but there was nothing the detectives could give them. Even the news took a break on the case of the missing Schumacher boy. There were no new leads, no new stories. It seemed as though life in Wauwatosa would go back to normal, as best it could, and Buddy's disappearance would become a sad, mysterious event to be filed away. But on October 13th, yet another young boy was found killed, the fourth in the surrounding area. 11-year-old Francis Pioletti, a reverend's nephew, was found mutilated in the third floor of a vacant house in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was reported that Pioletti had been lured by a stranger who had asked him to help distribute yeast samples. After following the man into the house, Pioletti never returned home. Upon examining the boy's body, the coroner asserted that Pioletti had been killed by a blow to the head. But the coroner found something in his throat, an item that tied this case directly to Buddy Schumacher, a handkerchief. The St. Paul police located Pioletti's killer that day. 21-year-old William Brandt was found hiding under his bed in his mother's home. When questioned, his mother admitted that Brandt had come home at 11 p.m. the night before, smelling of liquor and acting suspiciously. But she also said that if her son had killed the kid, it must have been because he'd gone insane. She was protective of her boy and didn't seem to believe he had done it. But after just two hours of questioning, Brandt confessed to killing Francis Pioletti and was thrown in jail. Soon after Brandt's arrival, the prison wardens heard about how he had used a handkerchief. 
Having read about the Schumacher case in the papers, they wondered if Brandt might also have been Buddy's killer and invited Detective Kramer to question Brandt in person. Mr. Brandt, you've been on quite the killing spree. Uh, I did not kill that boy. Which one, Mr. Brandt? He was so small. Where were you on the night of July 24th? Uh, I don't know. Let's try yes or no questions. Did you live in Milwaukee this past summer? Yes. Did you take a train at any point? Yes. Mr. Brandt, did you chase a group of boys off that train? They were making fun of me. Did you kill one of those boys? I don't know. The train was moving very fast, and they were laughing, and it was very noisy, and... and... Mr. Brandt? Mr. Brandt! Medic! Medic, please! Call an ambulance! He's fainted! As a kid, Brandt frequently suffered from epileptic seizures, and his brother stated that during these episodes, Brandt would become violent. Brandt once even took a knife and swung it at his brother's throat. At 10 years old, Brandt was moved into the School for Feeble-Minded and Colony for Epileptics in Fairbalt, Minnesota. There, he suffered an extraordinary amount of abuse. According to a letter Brandt wrote years later from prison, the attendants reportedly used a rubber hose to beat the students and force the boys to have sex with one another. Brandt also said that he retained these habits long after being at the school. Brandt might have had violent impulses before institutionalization, but it was within the institutions that he claimed he learned to indulge them. Brandt was eventually sentenced to life in prison for Francis Pioletti's murder. During this first imprisonment, the warden reported that Brandt had acted strangely. He would ask to speak to someone, then stay silent when a supervisor came to his cell. But it was only a matter of time until he talked. And when he finally did, it shook the Buddy Schumacher case to its core. Coming up next, Buddy's tale receives a second cold-blooded confession. Now, back to the story. In early October of 1925, a mentally deranged 21-year-old named William Brandt was arrested for the murder of an 11-year-old boy in St. Paul, Minnesota. Though the circumstances were eerily similar to the murder of 8-year-old Buddy Schumacher, Brandt refused to say he had anything to do with Buddy's death. But on November 24, 1925, Brandt spoke to a journalist and confessed to the murder of Buddy Schumacher, shocking newspapers across the country. We were on a train, and the boys, they all ran away, except one. That was Buddy Schumacher. I asked him why they disappeared, and he said they were afraid of me. And then what happened? We talked for a while. I had some liquor, and we found another man who had some liquor, and then I started smoking. The boy wanted a cigarette, but I wouldn't give him one, and then I did. And then I don't remember what happened next. But you killed the boy. I came to, and I was hugging and choking the boy, and his clothes were covered in blood, and he was dead. I don't remember how I did it, but when I realized he was dead, I took the boy's overalls and stuffed them down a drain pipe nearby. And I had a handkerchief with me, and I tore off my initials and stuffed it in his mouth. 
Then I threw him in the bushes. So you killed him? I admit, I had him in the same way as the Pialetti boy in St. Paul. Brandt's confession was quickly printed all over the papers and taken as the final word in the investigation. During the week of Thanksgiving 1925, the Wauwatosa News ran the story with the headline, Murderer is Caught at Last. This was the last story the news printed on the case. For the media and town of Wauwatosa, Buddy's case was closed. Brent fit the mold of a child murderer perfectly. He had the body of an adult, but the mind of someone that was, according to some doctors, 10 years and eight months old. And after Brent himself declared that he deserved to be locked up forever, the papers took the opportunity to shame men like Brent and their parents. On November 25th, the Sheboygan Press published an article entitled The Moron Danger. In it, they expressed concern that Brandt hadn't been locked up earlier and blamed his parents' reluctance to commit their child to a state institution. No parent has the right to jeopardize the welfare of the community and endanger the lives of little tots by keeping one of these misfits at home. We have had too many experiences of late, all of which have resulted in some of the most fiendish crimes in the annals of American criminology. Our laws should be so strengthened that a complete check can be kept on the mental condition of each individual. Parents who are loath to confine a son who is mentally defective are doing themselves an injury, as well as the community. We have no right to harbor or allow one of these defectives to be fostered in our midst. He's better off in an institution where medical treatment can be accorded, for at a home he is a burden upon the other members of the family and a constant danger to them. But Brandt had spent much of his life in mental institutions. To make matters worse, Brandt learned to indulge his violent impulses while living in the institutions. The paper simply wanted to milk drama out of Brandt's background. He was the textbook definition of someone who would have killed young boys like 11-year-old Francis Pialetti and 8-year-old Buddy Schumacher. It seemed only a matter of time before he was locked up for both. But later in the week, the papers and the detectives started to cast their doubts on Brandt's confession in the Schumacher case. According to the Sheboygan Press, a few things weren't adding up. One, Brandt had said that he'd bloodied Buddy's clothes, but the police had found the clothes clean. Two, he had claimed to have stuffed Buddy's overalls down a nearby drain pipe, but the overalls had been found on Buddy's body. Three, Brandt had said that he tore the initials off the handkerchief, but the linen still had the A intact. Four, when Detective Kramer brought a picture of Brandt to Buddy's three companions, none of them recognized him. Further, the police finally located Frank Blue, the railroad employee that, at the beginning of the search, had reported that he had seen Buddy and the boys get chased off by a vagrant. He believed that Brandt looked familiar, but couldn't assuredly say that he was the same vagrant from the train. Once again, Detective Kramer couldn't get enough hard evidence to charge his suspect. I don't know what to do with you, Brandt. Your story doesn't add up. I killed him. I did. What about the clothes? I thought about putting them down a drain pipe. I I did, but I must have dreamt it. That's right. I I dreamt it. And the bush? It was windy that day, and it must have blown off. It did. 
How can I prove that you did it, Brand? You want to be locked up, right? Can you give me something you remember? Something concrete? I blacked out. I do that sometimes. I just went into a blank space and I don't remember it. Kramer believed Brant was guilty, but he also figured that because Brant was already locked up, there was no point in pursuing the Schumacher case any further. As such, he called the case closed, even though he had not gotten a conviction. The Schumacher family spent their first Thanksgiving without their boy and without a confirmation of his killer's identity. One can only imagine what the dinner table would have felt like that afternoon without a place set for Buddy. Life in Wauwatosa went back to normal. Jeanette Schumacher continued her schooling. Arthur and Florence adjusted to life without Buddy and children again played outside. But in a bizarre twist, Brant's confession wouldn't be the only confession in the Schumacher case. In early December 1925, almost 20 weeks after Buddy's disappearance, a man named Frank Stencil wrote to police asserting that he had strangled Buddy to death. At the time of his confession, Stencil was locked up in Ohio for breaking into a railroad station. He'd previously been arrested for burglary and was proven to have been in Milwaukee around the time of Buddy's murder. All in all, he looked like a likely suspect. But a few days later, he reneged. He said he had read about the case in the papers and had confessed because he thought it would help him get out of Ohio and be transported to Milwaukee instead. Stencil was charged only for breaking and entering and eventually released. His name was never connected with Buddies again. Sadly for Detective Kramer and the Schumacher family, this wasn't the only confession to be recanted. Late in 1925, Brant's brother wrote to him in prison, imploring Brant to stop convincing himself that he had killed the Schumacher boy. He wrote, Now, Bill, those illusions and spells you have about that Milwaukee boy you must forget, or you will believe you did do it as long as you talk about it. And I know you didn't do it. A year later, Brant recalled his confession and claimed that he'd been pressured by Milwaukee police. Technically, Buddy's killer was never officially determined or charged, and eventually the papers stopped reporting on the case. Occasionally, the Schumacher name did pop up again, but only in connection with other boys that disappeared in the Milwaukee area. On December 13, 1925, eight-year-old Mike Letcher heard that Santa Claus was giving out candy and went out with some friends to grab some. A few days later, he was found alive but starving and near frozen in an abandoned railroad car. He had been assaulted and locked up. And on December 17, 1925, another eight-year-old boy, Roy Tolsman, was reported missing. Later, the Sheboygan Press reported that his body was found burned in a barn. When writing the Tolsman story, the Milwaukee Sentinel added an anecdote about an 11-year-old girl who had recently escaped a vagrant. The story claimed that the vagrant had tried to stuff a handkerchief down her throat and reminded readers about Buddy, implying that his killer was still on the loose. But unlike in Buddy's case, both Letcher and Tolsman's attackers were charged within a few days of the disappearances. 
there was a small hope that one of the two men might also fess up to killing Buddy, but neither did. And after some investigation, no connections to Buddy's murder could be found. Like William Brandt, Roy Tolzman's assailant was a man that had spent most of his life suffering abuse at the hands of mental institutions. After he was arrested, Letcher's attacker expressed concern that people like him weren't entirely aware of their actions. He felt that he and other mentally ill persons, like Brandt and Edward Vreeland, should be put away for life or even killed. The blame placed on vagrants led politicians and judges to find ways to lock up the mentally disabled into various insane asylums. At the time, this was done with little concern for treatment or reparation. In April of 1926, Police Chief George Baltus banned vagrants from the city and cleared away the Yunkles along the river. Parks were upgraded, and in 1933, the lake where Buddy had gone to play that morning was turned into a community swimming pool. Memories of the tragedy of Buddy Schumacher were slowly erased. Florence and Art Schumacher took in a nephew and raised him as if he was their own son. Jeanette Schumacher went on to marry a military man. Reportedly, she rarely talked about her brother, but every year on Christmas, she hung a paper envelope made by Buddy in the center of her tree. After multiple confessions, mixed identifications, and countless news articles, I have no doubt that Buddy's killer was William Brandt. The confession, the use of the handkerchief, and the fact that he was in the Milwaukee area that July all adds up. Not to mention that he already had a history of being violent with young boys. Oh, not so fast there. Edward Vreeland popped in and out of questioning so many times that it could also have been him. However, as much as I want to believe that it was Edward, I think he was probably wrongly targeted and innocent. Despite his memory lapses, I don't think he had it in him to be a killer. I think Buddy's killer was never found. A vagrant who wandered out of Wauwatosa and was left free to roam. Well, that's certainly a possibility, and one the Schumachers were frightened by. Even decades later, Jeanette still banned her three sons from playing by the railroads or the town river. As long as kidnappings and murders persisted, Jeanette would never feel the area was safe for her young boys. And as long as the homeless set up camps, the papers would always have someone to blame. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the murder of Buddy Schumacher, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder in Wauwatosa, The Mysterious Death of Buddy Schumacher by Paul Hoffman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open up the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Stacey Lee Nemec, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, Harris Markson, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.